Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy. Good on you for having a crack at episode 94 of the Howie Games Part A featuring Ian Smith. In the heady days of the 1980s when New Zealand were rolling out that magnificent brown and beige kit, Smitty was a mainstay of the Kiwi team. A wicketkeeper and lower order batsman, Ian played 63 tests and 98 one-day internationals for the Black Caps. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind, you're confused and want to know, mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by After retiring from the game, Ian took up cricket and rugby broadcasting and he is the best there is. Personally, I was absolutely pumped about working alongside Ian during the 2019-20 New Zealand tour of Australia. To see him in action and to sit behind him and see how he does it was brilliant because for mine... He is the best cricket commentator on the planet. He is by far and away my favourite. And let's see what he's prepared to do. Exactly as you talked about, Ian takes it over. One of the two men short on the offside. He gets pumped right up in the box. He's passionate and he is excitable, which I absolutely love. Tony goes big. Goes big. How big? I think it's big enough. It is. Oh, man, just by a matter of inches. Ian also has the rare ability to absolutely nail the big moments as he did in last year's World Cup final between England and New Zealand, which we go over in this episode. Smitty also talks about his biggest commentary stuff-up, which is an absolute ripper, takes us behind the scenes in the infamous underarm game in which he played in 1981, and also tells some ripping stories about cricket in the 1980s. Enjoy the man with the constant smile who was recently awarded the Burt Sutcliffe Medal by New Zealand Cricket for his services to cricket, Ian Smith, MBE. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Ian Smith uh, Via New Zealand, I am in Australia It is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Howie Games I had the most entertaining summer getting to see you in action uh, on Fox Cricket um, And I loved every moment How are you great man? How are you tracking? Oh, I'm tracking okay, I guess. You know, like uh, everyone else around the world, I'm I'm doing something I'm not used to, but um, I, I'm coping, mate. I'm you know I'm I'm at this stage I'm virus free and I'm um, I'm happy. I'm surrounded by my family and and we're keeping an eye on each other. And I, I tell you what, mate, there's a lot of people worse off than me. So I'm happy to talk to you, Howie, and, and I'm in a pretty good mood. That's great to hear. Um, your son set this up technically, thankfully, yeah. so we're, we're operating nicely. Are you a man that A, listens to podcasts or B, even knows what a podcast is, Smithy? I say that I've, with the greatest respect. I've done about three for various people. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've been an interviewee a few times. Right. Uh, but, but I can tell you that in this time of, of no production of sport, there is an outside chance there might be a Smithy podcast yes. on on some couple of, on a couple of or several uh, New Zealand noted sportsmen from today and from the past. We're talking about it, Howie, but um, 
I'll need some advice from the master in terms of uh, how you go about it, mate. Well, I reckon all you do is smile and have a chat and have a listen. We should be doing this over a beer, which is one of your great loves in life. Um, yes. let, let's let's start from the start. Firstly, the thing that strikes me, Ian David Stockley Smith. There's an MBE on the end there. Where's Stockley come from? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a family name, um, uh-huh. and it stretches back on my father's side of things. So uh, his father was a Stockley, Harold Stockley. He, my dad was Keith James Stockley. Uh, he had uh, seven siblings, five <laughs> brothers and three, so that's eight eight siblings, so he's one of nine. They've all got Stockley in there. They've got generally got a, a Christ, two Christian names and then a Stockley and then a Smith. Um, my three sons have all got Stockley, but it's it's starting to whittle away. A lot of the girls don't want it in their name. So um, the most famous Stockley is Marilyn Janet Stockley Smith, who was New Zealand's first ever women's professional golfer. So there you go. Yeah, so there you go. In fact, my family are all golfers. Um, my father... He was a really good golfer. I mean, he, he played at uh, uh, scratch. He shot his age well over 60 times before he died. Uh, he was a fantastic golfer. And then um, he had three brothers who were all club professionals and a niece who was a tournament professional. So golf's, uh, I'm really the only cricketer in the, in the group. Uh, they're golfers. We'll get to your cricket in a moment. As, as I said in the, in the intro there, um, I was really excited about working with you over the summer and, and seeing how you go about it. How was your Australian experience um, with the likes of Gilly and Warney and Vaughan and Isha and all the flash whiz-bang cameras? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Uh, I loved it. I, I'll tell you why. Um, the interesting thing for me is that I've, I've been doing this so long that I, I commentated a lot of their careers entirety you know i mean i i i was commentating before warren's career started uh same with vaughn and, and gilly and, and all those guys and and, and you know I, i'm probably in that regard i'm a bit like skull yeah i'm one of the guys that watch these guys come through the ring so uh and then of course you know you, you throw in and, and um the lovely ladies we work with with isha corsa and and kath can i say kath Yes, Kath, uh, and, and you saw yourself how who, who weren't able to uh, each did, of course, but you, you and Kath hadn't. But but so vital to the production in terms of bringing a non-cricket and a human perspective into it, uh, which I found quite invaluable. Actually, I, I, it was one of the highlights. And then Huss in the in the lab, the technicians uh, that work behind the scenes. Uh, it's a really good production, man. I, I'm not, you know piddling in your pocket or anything like that. You work for a good production, um, so easy to work for, so accommodating. Um, but it, it's just, it was just, you know, I mean, it ended too quickly for me. And, of course, the, the way it ended in the end was was really bad because I didn't get a chance to properly say goodbye to all those great people. But uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I've uh, worked in a lot of productions over the last 27 years of doing this. Uh, and um, top of the top drawer, top drawer with, with all the technology and, uh, it left me wanting more, really, of, of that standard. You know, to imagine going down, taking a camera down to Tim Payne and saying, you know, basically <laughs> saying, how much long are you going to go for? You know, mm. you, have you got enough runs? Or, you know, and he'll turn around and say, yeah, well, I think we've got enough runs. It's just the time thing. I just want to keep burning these guys a bit more. Or, hell, you can't get a much more honest damn answer than that. Um, and, and that that kind of thing is, is once you start it, it's going to be very hard to stop now. Really, yeah. you, you've said a, you've said a, 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 you know, every t- every team, like it or not, every production, has got to have a Howie now. 
like it or not. We've got to have a, got to have a bloody hour. I don't Jeez. know if that's what it is. <laughs> and you can't afford that, Smitty, so that's not well, happening. Well, that's the other, no, that's the other no, thing. I'm being, I'm being silly now. Mate, where did it start for you? Where where'd you grow up? Um, tell me about young Smitty. Well, young Smitty is a, a member of a family of five. Mum and dad, older sister uh, Pam, older brother Mike. Uh, sporting people, um, backyard cricket was where I started, um, street cricket and a cul-de-sac, uh, playing with the neighbours and that sort of thing. I lived in a pretty poor area, to be fair, uh, but not far from where we lived was a, a rich school where uh, I would never have been able to afford to go, but I was able to ride my bike and, and watch them play over the fence. And I think it's the red ball, the caps, bigger guys playing, bit of clapping, I think that's when it really grabbed me. Um, cricket itself, I, I love all sport, um, and, and you know, I've, I've dabbled in lots of them over the years. But cricket's been the one that stayed with me every summer through throughout that time. So that's that's where it started for me. What were you going to be doing if you weren't playing cricket for New Zealand? Was there a career path for young Smitty, or what? What were you going to be doing? Yeah, I was a bank teller. <laughs> I wouldn't okay. trust you with my cash. No way. No, no, you shouldn't have either. To be fair, <laughs> uh, look, I was a, I was a, I was a banker uh, at that point, so I, I worked in. Uh, I, I left school, Howie, at the age of uh, seventeen on June the fourth, nineteen seventy four, to play soccer for Kiwi United uh, for ten dollars a point. So if we won, we got twenty bucks, right? I also worked, joined the National Bank because the soccer guy who I played for was also an employee of the National Bank. He got me a job there. So I worked for uh, $20 a week if we won the soccer, $32 a week, gross, working for the bank, gross. I had to pay my mother $5 board out of that. And, and if we won, if we won, I ended up with about 40 bucks because you know, I don't have to tax and board. Uh, and if we won the soccer, 40 bucks. Now, 40 bucks could buy a reasonably good pair of, of high-heeled sort of shoes that we had back in those days. <laughs> and because I was 17 or 18, that gave me a better chance of getting into the pub <laughs> because the drinking the drinking age, I was well below the drinking age, and I didn't look anywhere near the drinking age, but I could make myself taller with platform shoes. Oh, to get in there. So seriously, that was the way we thought about life back then. Um, so, yeah, I, I could easily have been right now the retired former general manager or president of the National Bank of New Zealand, except for the fact that you probably own it over there now anyway. <laughs> so what, the Kiwi United, what were they what, Were they playing in? A, like, that's obviously a reasonable standard. What, what were you playing in as a soccer Cent- player? Central League Division 1, yeah. Right, I, what I what position there. were you? Oh, a striker, of course. Oh, so were you... Very quick and a prolific goal scorer. Who would you would you more of a Messi or a Ronaldo or what? what you, who were you comparing yourself to? Yeah, probably a bit of mix of both, really. <laughs> I, I, I think uh, with a, trying to live a George Best lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> For all our listeners, if you haven't read George Best's book, it's in but. Um, in my shelf out there, that is that is a, that is a ripping read. I'll um at some stage I'll tell you what the book's called. So where when does cricket start to to really take over the um the soccer and the the NAB Bank career? Like when when do you start really making strides as a cricketer? I think um I I went through first class cricket and and around about nineteen seventy eight seventy nine I I decided that cricket was probably more my thing. 
so I concentrated more on 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 playing cricket. And then I got picked to play in a young New Zealand uh, cricket side to play against the Derek Robbins touring eleven from from England. Uh, and we played there in, in early 1980. Um, and uh, they were after that t- uh, team played. They were going to name the New Zealand cricket side to tour Australia for 1980-81, so to be a 10-week tour. And uh, I knew that they were looking to pick some younger guys to blood them and, and bring them through for the future. And they named me uh, as, the, as the backup wicketkeeper. And that, of course, was the day that cricket um, was to be my thing. And uh, that was my first tour, and and. I'll never forget that one. I don't. It's like most things in life, Harry. They say you never forget your first. Uh, so I, I, um, I absolutely loved it. Uh, Ten weeks in Australia at the most magnificent cricket grounds that I'd only ever heard about or listened to from Alan McGilvray and Lindsay Hassett on shortwave radio, and all of a sudden I'm going to damn well be there. Uh, so that was the start of the Benson and Hedges series from our point of view. That was the underarm tour, of course. Uh, it's been relived so often. Uh, and that's when Ian Smith started, I suppose, to, to grow up as a person and as a cricketer. So you played your first test match at the Gabba in November yep. 1980. Yep. But, so you, you said you were the reserve wiki. So how all, all of a sudden were you playing in a test match? Well, Warren Lees, was, um, he was the senior wicketkeeper on that tour. He gave me about uh, around about 55 minutes' notice. He twinged the hamstring and warm-ups. <laughs> So I'd hardly played any warm-up games or anything because everything was building towards the first test. So they're basically playing, you know, as much as they could to their, their first test side. So I had very little warning. So I didn't really have a chance to get nervous. Uh, we lost the toss um, and uh, we got mowed over real quick. So the first thing I did was bat, not for very long. I made seven. First bowler I faced was uh, Lenny Pascoe. Who's <laughs> lovely bloke <laughs> with ball in hand, <laughs> and we went, had to walk over the gabba in those days. They had a grass uh, greyhound track. You used to walk over that and down the stairs, some wooden stairs out into the gabba ground itself. And and he was basically almost there waiting for me because his run up was so long. And I had to walk past him and pretended not to look at him, but I knew exactly he was looking at me. And um, I, I like I, then you get there and you take guard and you look where Rod and Marsh, Rod Marsh, Kim Hughes, Greg Chapel, Alan Border. You know, uh, and you look around the field and you think, my God, am I really here? Uh, and and it took me probably, the time that I, I, I batted, I think, was probably 15 minutes, 18 minutes maybe. Um, I was still sort of in a different place. I wasn't, I was certainly wasn't ready to play at that level at that time. So uh, that test match has ended very quickly. We got a hammering, uh, got left out for the next two. Um, which was fine because, you know, I didn't deserve to probably be there. And also um, it gave me a, a little glimpse of where I had to get at physically, mentally, um, skill-wise. Uh, and the tour was so long that, you know, I did get another chance and, and that was in, in the one-day series. So I left as the backup wicketkeeper and came home as the number one wicketkeeper, which was, I suppose, you know, for a kid that age, was, was pretty cool. So how old were you playing that first test and what were you getting paid, do you reckon, Smitty, to play it to be a test match Yeah, that that's stage? A, it's a good question. Uh, I reckon um, I, I, I was, I think, 23. So I wasn't, you know, I'm not your 17-year-old Muhammad Azaruddin or mm. your 16-year-old, 15-year-old Sachin Tendulkar. So I've, I've been around a wee bit, but I hadn't been around cricket circles of that nature. Uh, I would be thinking uh, back then, uh, I know we came home. I, I think 
I, I think we got about seven or eight k for the whole tour. Okay. But I, I, when we came home, I distinctly remember uh, getting paid around 150 bucks in a brown envelope for a test match in about 1981. <laughs> so it's 30 bucks a day. In an envelope? Uh, in of, yeah. So there's no 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 tax for us back there because we weren't we were basically amateurs. There was only three guys on the side who could call themselves professional cricketers: Jeff Howarth, John Wright, uh, and Richard Hadley, of course. So the rest of us were basically had jobs, banks, or whatever. Um, and uh, so about 150 bucks, I think we got paid uh, in a three-test series against India at home following that tour. I want to ask you. Um at some stage about some of the guys you played with and against mm. because um, I noted there that in the second innings, Pascoe got in the first innings, caught Hughes, bowled Lily in your test career. So you're playing against some pretty serious cricketers. But you, you mentioned the underarm. I, I didn't know till uh, Laurie Colliver, our statistician, when I spoke said I was speaking to Smitty, said, mate, you've got to ask him about the underarm. So set it up for us, mate, because you were involved. It's the third match of the Benson Hedges final, uh, February mm. 1, 1981 in Australia. So obviously it's tied at... One all. The Aussies make four for 235. Take me back to that infamous, infamous day where relations between our two countries got to their (laughs) their lowest point they've ever been, Smitty. Like, we're good mates, we're neighbours, we've gone to war together, but old Piggy Muldoon, etc., she fired right up. Yeah, I mean, probably that was the last time we closed the borders on you, mate, until now. (laughs) 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 To be fair, I, I look, I, I, you know, again, just a starstruck kid, really. Um, the thing that uh, Australia batted first, of course, and, and as you said, they, they, they got those runs. Back in those days, that was a handy score, you know. Yep. Um, if you had to chase just under five and over, that was a challenge. And if you got to the point where you needed to run a ball, you, you felt like you are in trouble when you were chasing. So uh, that's how new the game was. Marsh hits it, going down towards deep mid-wicket. Coming back for the second, and that's what they'll settle for. So two to Marsh, and the Australian total four for 235. Australian flags waving out there. They're very happy with the way their men have performed. Great performance that by New Zealand to keep Australia down to 235. I know it's a sizable total, but at one stage I thought the Australians were going to get uh, something around about 260 or 270. Um, and and I, I distinctly recall uh, when Greg Chappell was caught in the outfield by Martin Stedden, one of the great outfield catches that was never given. Um, and, and the rigmarole that was, was on, involved in that. That's between two fielders, is it? What a catch! That is one of the best catches I've ever seen in my life. And Greg Chappell is staying there. Umpires are conferring. Sledden says he caught it. And the umpires have said that's not out. And Howarth is having a word with umpire Cronin. I stood next to Greg Chappell while this was happening, this whole thing. And he looked to me as if he was carved out of granite. He was just unmoved about the whole deal. You know, players were yelling at him, saying, you know, take the word of the catcher, you know, play the game in the right spirit, all this sort of thing. And he basically hardly moved. He just stood there and, and he was in a zone that, you know, he looked unaffected by the whole thing. So if I look back on it now and, and then look at the underarm, I can kind of think he's probably in that kind of zone all day. But it was, I, found that, I found that pretty weird. Um, and then, of course, we got to the run chase situation and, and 
you, you kind of hope that you're not going to be involved, but you know you might be. Um, so you, you're ready, you're waiting, and, and it's such a long walk uh, out to the MCG. Uh, Richard Hadley got a shocking LBW first ball of the of the over. Over Chapel. Dear. There we go. Let's have a look at that on replay. Well, I would say that that might have just pitched outside leg stump. Certainly it would have hit the stumps. But uh, I think that Richard Hadley could justifiably feel a little bit annoyed at that decision. I went out second ball and uh, I think we ran a couple of twos. Um, and we Bruce got Edgar to the point was up the where, other end. He was yeah, Bruce Edgar, 100 not out. My great mate, best man actually uh, right. at my wedding, Bruce Edgar. So uh, I knew him pretty well. And, and he basically said, no, we, we haven't got time to muck around. Or, you know, we just got to hit. We've got to go. And, and so we can run I, can everything. I just, can I yeah. just stop you for one moment? I, I don't know if you've gone back at it. I looked at it yesterday and you've come out to bat. And Bill Laurie basically said, you're not the right man for the job because you don't have any power behind your game. Four balls remaining. 11 runs required for victory. Possibly the best they could hope for would be a draw. Two fours and a two. Smith not a big hitter. And really it's unfortunate that Edgar's not on strike. You, you struck at 100 pretty much in one-day cricket. Yeah. And then Ian Chappell came in and chipped him. It was extraordinary. He said, no, no, Smith, he can get the job done. It's quite extraordinary when you listen back to it. Well, I'd have to disagree with Smith not being a big hitter. He I saw him hit an awful big six off Dennis Silly at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Yeah, look, uh, you know, um, it's interesting, actually. Uh, you can't, obviously, you can't hear it. Uh, uh, and you, you, you don't really look back on it that, uh, that kind of way. But... I was pretty confident that if I got one um, in the slot, I, I could probably hit four. Uh, in those days, how you had to hit the ball over the fence to get six at the MCG. Yeah. Now, of course, they bring the ropes in by, what, 10 metres because of advertising and Human Resource Acts or whatever they, you know, safety to players. And so, you know, you had to hit it over the fence. Now, that's a big hit. I, I tell you, you've stood in the middle often enough mm. to, to look at the, the vast expanse of the MCG. But you... you you had to hit it over. I didn't know whether I was capable of doing that. I actually had hit Dennis Lilly for six at the SCG not long before that. Um, Which is what Chapel was... mentions. That's exactly yeah. what Ian Chapel says. Yeah, so I thought I was capable if I got one in there. I, I really wasn't that skilled enough that I could go inside out over cover like they do these days. I wouldn't have had – no one ever thought of, of a scoop shot or a reverse. <laughs> you know, we were just hitting, looking at a serious zone. You know, and they say hitting in the V, you know, it's hitting the V. Well, my V's there. So <laughs> out through mid-wicket. Yeah, they yeah. call it hey, – in those days, they, in those days, they called it a slog, yep. right? These days, of course, it's it's a shot over cow corner. Yes. Beautifully calculated, which in some of these – Young kids, about a million a year in the IPL. <laughs> but I was just a dirty slogger. <laughs> so anyway, I played one of the most god-awful, the second-last ball with the most god-awful shot you've ever seen in your life. They need six off two balls for a tie, seven off two balls for a win to New Zealand. Trevor Chappell, the bowler, Smith, the batsman, 52,000 people in front of their seats. Chapel picked up two wickets. Yeah, slamming that one in short of the length. It doesn't bounce very high, and that's what's beaten Ian Smith. 
The fact that it's kept a little bit low and is hitting across the line, looking for the big hit over mid-wicket. It kept low, though. Did keep low. What an... It didn't bounce. No. Uh, it bounced slightly more than the next one, though. <laughs> yes, it did. So, so, so you, you walk off. Um, McKechnie comes in. He needs yeah. six off the last ball. Do, take me – do you get into the rooms when it's happening? Like, take me back to that, that time. You're right, okay. Long walk. Long walk from off there uh, when you think you've let the side down because at that stage we couldn't win the game. Six would have tied it. Okay, so we'd missed the opportunity to win it. So you're feeling a bit – hollow about the whole deal about that. Um, you're walking up, and as I was walking up, my captain, Brian McKechnie, gone past me uh, privately because you've got a cross on the ground, but as I was going up the steps into the viewing lounge, the MCG had a viewing lounge and then a dressing room underneath, um, I, I just vividly recall Jeff Howarth, my captain, running past me uh, in a T-shirt. Um, he had his uh, beige trousers on and he was in his socks running past me, and I thought, that's a little bit weird, you know, that's a little bit odd, but Still, I was in this disappointment zone, I guess. I, I walked into the thing, basically, you know, I said sorry and, and, and walked down the players' thing. And then I, I still in my pads heard this almighty kerfuffle upstairs. New Zealand's only hope now is a six off the last ball for a tie. Long discussion. Well, it looks to me as if they're going to bow underarm off the last ball. Rod Marsh is saying no, mate, but I'm sure he's going to bow an underarm delivery. He's a big ex-Victorian skipper. They're going to bow an underarm. You haven't believed it. And that's a disappointing finish. Disappointed Brian McKechnie, the crowd boom. And it's all over. One of our guys threw a cup at the television. Other guys were swearing and cursing, and other guys were. So I ran up, still in my pads, and just took it all in. And one of the blokes said, well, he's going to bowl underarm. And I thought, really? You know, really? Why? And, and um, it happened. It just happened before our eyes. Now, um, after the game, of course, there was no pleasantries extended. They had to come up. We are in the top of the, the two uh, dressing room doors, uh, like that far apart. They have to go right, and we're standing left. And there was no handshaking or anything like that. One or two of the players, uh, I remember, looked okay about the whole deal. But the bulk of the Australian side looked pretty disappointed about what had just happened. Now, everyone around Australia will have their uh, own ideas on that. And uh, we always get letters and phone calls about different things that happen. So I don't expect anyone to agree with me. Uh, I don't expect uh, that you'll get more than 50% agreement on anything. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a disgraceful performance from a captain who got his sums wrong today. And I think it should never be permitted to happen again. We keep reading and hearing that the players are under a lot of pressure and that they're tired and jaded and perhaps their judgment and their skill is blunted. Well, uh, perhaps they might advance that as an excuse for what happened out there today. Not with me, they don't. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Good night. So we went downstairs and we sat in our dressing room and, and we felt a little bit hard done by, I guess. Uh, so we we laid our flag, John Bracewell laid the flag in an act of patriotism, we laid our flag out on the dressing room floor and we drank, mate, we drank some serious beers. And, and of course, because we were because we were the hard done by team, the beers just kept coming. <laughs> we just kept we just kept drinking them. And so what happened uh what happened of course is that um in that situation, um the Australian board members, three or four of them 
thought they'd better come in and, and at, at least a hand and a shake a few hands and say sorry. Uh, and they did, but one of them walked over the flag, and on his right, <laughs> walked on the flag. Oh, no. oh, Johnny Brace and a couple of boys just went off. It just it was just bizarre <laughs> scenes underneath there. And of course, uh, you know, the temptation was always you go and have a drink with the fielding side because you know that was the way things were done back then. Uh, no, that, that didn't happen. So we were advised that probably that wasn't the right time to do that. I, I think we probably sat there two and a half hours, which is a long, long time. Mm. Um, and it was a, it was a day game, and it was it was certainly quite getting towards the dark side of things when we when we decided to go back to the hotel. We went outside, and the, what really got me was the number of people still there. Probably, I'd say between two and three thousand people still there at the ground, uh, wow. and. Basically, mostly Australians, a few New Zealanders scattered in there, but and they wanted to carry our bags to the team buses and things. We were we're staying at the St Kilda Travel Lodge. They wanted to help us. They couldn't apologise enough. They were sorry about the whole deal, and uh, and that's when I finally, uh, really finally hit me because I've been in this cave downstairs that it had hit home to a lot of people. So if that many people had hung around. So we got back to the hotel, and of course, you know, cricket has been cricket. had a couple more in the house bar, and then the news filtered through about um, that it was hitting the fan back in New Zealand. Prime Minister's getting involved, and I think Piggy Muldoon had said something. It's a, you know, it's a very apt thing that the Australians are wearing yellow. Yes. And it, it was it was just it just got picked up the paper the next day, and it was boom, man, it was boom. Greg Chappell's actions as an act of cowardice, which I believe it was. Uh, and I thought it was most appropriate that the Australian team was dressed in yellow. Uh, I said it was a, uh, the most disgusting episode that I could recall in the history of cricket. Um, it was a, a really weird three to four days of my cricketing life, to be fair, to be part of it. And whilst you, you've, you've, you sort of try to um, downplay it a wee bit, um, and when you played as long as I have and, and, and talked about the game as long as I have, it'll never leave me. Mate. It'll, it'll never leave me. And I, I will say this. Um, I, I've got to know Greg Chappell a lot more since then. Uh, I respect his views on cricket. I, I think he's a terrific guy. Uh, I think he had a bad day out. Uh, and, you know, he's copped a lot because of it. Uh, he, I've always had great respect for him as a batsman. When I stood behind him as a wicketkeeper, I, I thought he was one of the most polished and, and most superb batsmen I'd ever stood behind. Um, you know, and we've we've never talked about that incident a, at all, but we've talked a lot about other aspects of cricket and life, actually, from that point onwards. But uh, when Martin Crow, my great friend Martin Crow, passed away um, two or three years back, Greg Chappell travelled from Australia uh, to his funeral. And I thought that was really special, really, really special because Martin Crowe was idolised Greg Chappell. Um, and he, whilst Martin Crowe wasn't involved in the underarm game, he, he, I guess most New Zealanders were stung a wee bit by it. But I just put it down to, um, as Richie Benoit summed it up beautifully, a captain that got his sums wrong um, and had a really bad day out. Morris Smitty in a moment. Next up on the show, one of the favourite episodes I have ever recorded. This man blew me away. I cannot wait for you to hear it. His name is Paddy Mills. He is a man deeply, deeply invested in his cultural roots. He is a leader and an NBA champion with the San Antonio Spurs after they knocked off the heat back in 2014. 
I'll be honest with you, mate. A, a cool story that I don't know if a, a lot of people know, but right before um, game one of the NBA Finals in 2014, we're up against Miami. We haven't, we haven't even had a practice yet or prepared for the heat, right? We've worked our whole season um, in 2014 to get back to this stage so that we can have some redemption on, on the year prior. Um, and I remember walking into the film room because we had a film um, meeting that was that was scheduled before practice. So the whole team walks in there. We sit down on the seats, and and you know, Coach Pop gets up, um, and the first thing that he asks everyone, he's like, "Do you know what day it is today?" And everyone kind of just stopped and looked at him. You know, oh, well, isn't today we're meant to be talking about LeBron James and Miami Heat? And there was silence, but he goes. Today is the 3rd of June and it's Marbo Day. Does anyone know what Marbo Day is? Wow. And I kind of, like even now just saying this story, like, you, you know, like rock drops in your throat and this thing, I was like, is he, he's not talking about like Eddie Marbo, you know, what I think he's talking about, is he? And sure enough, he goes into a full in-depth um, little spill about who Eddie Marbo is and the impact that he had on uh, Australian history um, and how massive he was and, and comparing it to, um, you know, Martin Luther King in, in that sense, right? And you can imagine me, like, I'm just sitting there, you know, eyes like this. I was like, no way this is happening. I'm meant to be talking about um, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and that. But but he did. And, and he even put a photo up on... Uh, on the TV, on, on the slideshow, um, and it was him in his shirt, you know, big afro, big beard, so that everyone could uh, get a picture of, of who he was talking about. And, mate, um, after that, he's like, well, you know, that's it for, for today. Let's, let's head out on the floor and talk about Miami Heat. So that, that's a memory, mate, that I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget the feeling of that. Um, very, very cool moment. Do not, please do not miss Patty on the show next week. It is an episode that absolutely blew me away. And please, if you could, hit subscribe on your podcast player. doesn't cost a cent to do it, and it means you will not miss all the extra episodes we are dropping at the moment. All right, back to Ian. Whilst we are on the topic of one-day yeah. international cricket, um, frequent listeners to this show know that my kids ask questions of the guest, Smitty, because uh, they're interested in sport, obviously, in this house. Um, you, so I ask them. I tell them about you. They both know you because they love their Fox cricket. You first get a question which is relevant to what we're talking about now, one day cricket in the 80s, from my daughter, Sky, who's 10, but operates as the pickle, Smitty. All right? So this right. is the question you get. Here we go. Hi, Smitty. Pickle here. I think you're the best commentator apart from my dad. I don't like it when dad has to wear a tie on TV. It's really not him. Did you used to like the old brown and beige one day international uniforms? Looked at it well, this morning and showed her some highlights and she's like, dad, what are they wearing? Actually, Pickle, to be fair, Pickle, I, I thought I cut quite a good figure in it. I, I thought, I, uh, if you have a close look at that underarm game, I, I'm actually not a bad-looking dude, to be you fair, back, back then. Uh, it's changed a wee bit now. Um, uh, look, I, I actually love the beige, and I'll, I'll tell you why, because um, New Zealand had a lot of outfits over the years, and no one, they, they had one series where they tried to touch the beige uh, with a retro game against Australia, but really the beige belongs to that era that I played in. 
Yes. And no one's tried to. Uh, no one else can really replicate it, uh, Sky. So, hey, look, I loved it. Uh, I loved it. Um, I've seen your dad with a tie on. You're right. <laughs> it's not him. It's not him. It's like, you know, it's like it wouldn't be him if he wore his baseball cap on right in the right way either. So, you know, it's just, it's just it's, I, I thank you for your question. I love the beige. I absolutely love the beige. And, you know, there's an army, an army in New Zealand now called the Beige Brigade formed way back about 20 years ago with a lot of members. And if you watch New Zealand cricket play anywhere around the world, you'll see pockets of Beige Brigade members. A bit like the Barmy Army, but smaller and much better behaved, Sky. <laughs> I like I like the Beige. Quick answers to these because this is my – this is when I first started watching cricket, one-day cricket in the mid-'80s. Um, if I was allowed to start late enough to watch the end of a one-dayer, did you ever receive the Golden Goblets from Tony Gregg for Man of the Match? Never. Never. Did you ever win – with your strike rate, Gus Logue, you always seemed to win this when the Kiwis were out, uh, when the uh, West Indies were out here. Did you ever win the Kit Kat strike rate? Never. Did you ever become a member of the Sid Chrome Super Test side? <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not, <laughs> never. I wanted, to know, I wanted you to have some golden goblets because I wanted to know if they were gold. <laughs> Remember Tony used to hand them over and the player of the match and the golden goblets and they were on a tray and there was three of them goes to, you know, Martin Crow of New Zealand and he'd do a quick yeah. interview. Here's the match, wins this Benson Hedges gold goblet and also $500 and uh, it's Martin Crow again for that magnificent innings. Con- congratulations. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> I, I, got, I got a hubcat. <laughs> what was when, that off the Haddle's car or something? Yeah, when Richard Adley won the car, we had to divvy it up. I got a hubcap. <laughs> so that was the International Cricket of the Year, wasn't it? Where they where they'd win a car? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. He won. He won the car. He kept the car and gave us uh, some timeshare in a, a motel in Taupo, which are uh, twenty eight years on. No, it's it's twenty twenty nine years on. I still haven't taken up. <laughs> Motel's probably closed now. I think. Hey, mate, you, you, you're um again. The the such the names that are familiar to me. The the Chatfield, Snedden, Coney, um, these guys. Right, Edgar yourself, because that's when I first started watching cricket. Your first Test hundred versus uh, the English in Auckland yeah. in 1984. Um, you needed your great mate, you and Chatfield, to get there. What was it like all of a sudden to become a New Zealand centurion? It's a pretty big deal, I would have thought. Yeah, it was because I, I, I'll tell you why. Because I played uh, four years on and off on the test side and I really hadn't delivered with the bat. You know, when I played at first class level, I first played as a batsman. So I really was underperforming a lot throughout that time. And it, it started to get to me. It cost me my place on the side a couple of times. So to actually get 100 was almost a, after three or four years of having a go. Uh, almost a, a self-statement after the fact that you actually can play at this level. Uh, you, game was fine, you know, that's getting by with that. But contributing with the bat when I when I when I needed to was um, important to me. So that meant a lot mentally. Um, and, and you know, it came out of unlikely circumstances, really. Where and you know, I didn't expect uh, to get 100. You, you just push on and you push on. And, and you know, and when chats came out, I think I needed 15 or 16, and he wasn't. He wasn't very good at, at batting, and he, he, he basically said to me, you, you better hurry up, mate, because you know, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> uh, so he hung around long enough, and he was quite resilient at just getting hitting the straight ones and not nicking the wider ones. So we got through. Um, it was really, really special. So Foster to Smith, who's on 99. 
side, he's done it. It's back to the square. One run, Ian Smith is 100. So I hit the last two balls. Once I got to 100, I hit the marks up into the terraces, the last two balls for six. And then next we declared because it started to rain. So and then um, there was a break and play. We declared with me on 113, not out or something. And, and Jeff had said, oh, let's have a go at these guys before stumps. Um, and Graham Fowler nicked the first ball off Richard Hadley of the inning. So I'm the only player in history that's hit gone and three consecutive balls of test cricket, gone 6-6 six, six catch. There you go. Quite Here's a, a pub question. Here's a pub question for you. I'm going to pull that out in the next rain delay we have. All right, I got a trivia <laughs> hey, for you then. I'll, I'll bet they don't get it in Costa Rica, that one, brother. <laughs> no, they're not big there on cricket or in Guatemala. They weren't big on cricket in Guatemala. I got a trivia for you then. This okay. works nicely. What happened on the 4th of May, 1985? Um, good God. Uh, I'm going to start helping you May, out. 90, 4th of May, 1985. You're so in the West the, Indies? Oh, West, West Indies, yeah. Um, you're in Kingston? Kingston, Jamaica? Yes. Yeah. Running very quickly wherever I went. Yeah. Uh, the West um, Indies made 363. New Zealand yeah. were 138 all out, followed yeah. on with 283. So the West Indies need 60 to win. I bowled. You bowled, Smitty! You bloody bowled! I bowled in test cricket, mate. I bowled three overs uh, at Haynes and Greenwich. Right. Uh, Desmond Haynes and Gordon Greenwich. And the, uh, the reason I did this is because um, Martin Crowe had done everything else in test cricket. Right, he'd opened the bowling, he'd done everything, scored hundreds, double hundreds, whatever. He'd never wicket kept. Uh-huh. So we're on the path to a very quick destruction here. And yes. he said, can I wicket keep? Jeff House said, no, go ahead, you golden bollocks you've done everything else so so what we did was uh, i think at that point we only they only needed about another 17 or 18 runs there was a break and play uh and so uh what we decided was we had a pack that martin crow would never touch the ball so to ha- for that to happen we had to tell haynes and greenwich they couldn't miss it so i bowled and i think john bracewell or someone else bowled who was slower at the other end and they never left it and they never played and missed so, of course, he never touched the ball. So when they work it down to fine leg, fine leg would run up and throw it to the bowler's end. So he'd be standing over the stumps waiting for it to come to him, and, of course, it'd just go over his head down to the thing. So he never touched it. So we, we achieved that, but we got a pace. And, yeah, I bowled in test cricket. I bowled actually a couple of reasonable deliveries. I sort of got the outside half of Gordon Greenwich's bat at one stage or something. Three overs, one maiden, none for five. You weren't okay. Yeah. Hey, looking at that team, and I just want to have a, a, one more. Before we get to commentary, I looked at that team as I was looking on Crick Info. Greenwich and Haynes opened the batting. Richie yep. Rich batted at number three. The great nudger, Larry Gomes at four. Viv at five. They had Logie, then Dujon, Marshall, Davis, Garner, and Walsh. You played in a time of... Legends bigger than Ben Hur style personalities in the time you played international cricket, Smitty. I did actually. I, you know, a lot of people say, "Don't you regret you didn't play now when they're earning a million bucks a year?" And 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 I, I say to them, I don't think so because I think I played at a hell of an era of, of cricket. I mean, you know, the, England had fantastic players all around the world. You could pick out that that was the era of the world's great all rounders: Dick Cappell, Dev. Both um, Hadley, you know, the, the airy side had one of the greats, and Imran Khan, of course. And it was just, they were just, 
you know, fantastic players. And every side had, had greats, absolute greats of the game that, you know, um, if you picked all-time 11, some of them would make it. Yes. So it, it was just a fantastic time to be around the game of cricket. And the, that West Indies side, um, you know, after, it was a four-test series and after two, it was the first time that Viv had been captain at home since the era of Clive Lloyd. So there was a lot of pressure on them. And, and after two tests, well, it was it was nil all. We'd held them out in two tests and they baffed us uh, in Barbados. Uh, it was pretty nasty there. And then even worse in Jamaica, they fixed us up even worse there. So it's tough. Uh, we did beat that side. Um, you, le- you left out Mikey Holding, of course. He was in that unit as well. Yeah, he was. He was uh, actually, yeah. yeah. And Andy Roberts had just finished. So I just oh. missed Andy Roberts. Um, but it, a phenomenally powerful side. Uh, and imposing, really. Uh, Malcolm Marshall once wrote in his book that he thought I was probably the scaredest batsman he'd ever bowled to, which, which is a bit of a compliment, really. But uh, I actually did pretty well. I actually spatted for quite some time against the Western. He's got some good runs against the Western. And never was unavailable for a game either. But, uh, because, you know, sadly, Malcolm, of course, um, passed away quite some time ago. I've never been able to sit down and have a, a, a run punch with him and have a chat about it. But he, he did tell me he was going to fix me in Barbados at one stage, <laughs> and he did too. <laughs> he sent me to hospital, which is cool, but, um, you know. Were well, you in the, the head? No, I mean the arm. Right, broke your arm? No, I didn't. Bad, no. Uh, because the interesting story is he, once you got past half the tour in terms of time, you got your full tour allowance, <laughs> and I was past that time, so I could have broken my arm and got full pay. <laughs> It's only badly bruised, and I'd have to go back and bat in the second inning. So disaster! <laughs> it, was a, it was a shocker. I like that tour of the West Indies, mate. Uh, that lives long in my memory, and so many funny stories and and interesting stories have come out of that one. That's it for part A of Ian Smith. Stick around for part B, where we get stuck right into sports commentary. Listener.